0: Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I hope your day is going well so far. Today I am joined by Mark Kaigua, who is a Kenyan entrepreneur, author and professional speaker. He is the founder and CEO of Nendo, which is a digital research, marketing and communications agency. Nendo delivers grounded African insights and trends to the world. And its clients include corporate market leaders and transformative non-profit organizations. Um, They work across the continent in multiple languages, and they're doing a lot of interesting work to document different digital communities and digital practices on the African continent. So I will give you a little bit more detail about them at the end of the episode, But for now, I'll leave it to Mark to take it away. And he's going to introduce us a little bit to the Kenyan digital landscape. We're going to go through a bit of the history of Kenyan digitality, what has made Kenya this particular outlier in in the African digital landscape and all kinds of different interesting phenomena that have had an impact on the Kenyan digital space over the years. All right, I'll leave it to Mark to take it away.
1: So my name is Mark Kaigua, and I'm the founder of a research and marketing agency called Nendo. And Nendo is based in Nairobi, in Kenya, uh, but we work across the continent. So we have work that is in English, Pidgin, and Portuguese, Somali, and all manner of just different languages that, that give us the chance to take our time and talents um, Around and test out ideas and theories specifically around the internet and mobile phones and social media. so Nendo has made a name for itself and had the the honor and pleasure of winning awards for our work. Uh, typically because you the phrase that we use is we deliver uh, grounded African insights and trends. And that's, that's really the way we see the, the continent is as a special place with a number of unique concepts and ideas bubbling up in cyber culture, in cyberspace, and with connectivity overall, and our understanding of media and information and how it travels. So always glad to have a space here and really appreciate you, Ungai, for inviting me and a big admirer of what you do and the community you serve and the ideas you put out. So happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. And you know, I'm gonna take us a little bit back because the first time I met you was almost ten years ago now. Um, yeah, time time is moving. <laughs> but then we met at iHub and I had, you know, been going to Kenya quite a lot at that point and I was trying to understand what it was about the Kenyan ecosystem that made it so different, you know, made so much tech innovation come out of it. And you you sent me on a tour around the IHUB. Um, and I was just like, oh, so this is how this works, and this is how that works. What is your experience, given that you're working in this, you know, pan-African environment, moving from context to context? What do you see as the reason why Kenya somehow stands out? You know, there's the idea of the savannah, the the what is it, the tech savannah?
1: Silicon savannah. Mm.
0: Silicon savannah. What is it about Kenya that made it such an early adopter of the internet and technology?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a few things. I have a resource that I hope is helpful to your listeners that you told me that you've referred to as well, called from the cyber cafe to the smartphone, how social media zooms in on Kenya and out to the world. And this was a chapter for a book called Digital Kenya, edited by um, a gentleman called uh, Tim Weiss and um, a venerable professor here called Bitanga Demo. And the two of them gave me <laughs> the space and opportunity to share and answer the, the question. And so I might not get give the full details, but I'll, I'll touch on what I tend to see as the key points and people can interpret them from the full bit of writing as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think Kenya initially had a number of things all happen at once. I think Malcolm Gladwell has famously used the analogy of timing, how so many great and powerful things happen because of timing, right? So when you're born, what's happening in the world. And so Kenya has benefited in some ways Uh, for me. If I could put it at three things, I'd say timing is one. I'd say leadership is the other. And Mm -hmm. some form of uh, action or decisiveness, some that's both where you ask for permission and others that you ask for forgiveness. So in terms of timing, I just think that the broad mobile revolution was happening. And Kenya was a beneficiary of that uh, Mm -hmm. with a somewhat more liberal um, uh, environment. And so just the timing uh, helped us tremendously tremendously. and I think that, that people were looking to Africa and not necessarily looking to South Africa or, or, uh, or Northern Africa with Egypt, Morocco, and, and so on. Uh, and so Kenya yep. benefited in terms of timing just off of that, that people are looking for a place that's not Nigeria and that's not South Africa or above. And so, and so timing wise, Kenya was, was ready and, 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 and fertile for, uh, for investment, for interaction, et cetera. That couldn't have happened without some element of leadership. I think Dr. Ndemo, who I mentioned earlier, was in the ministry um, mm-hmm. and talks famously of sitting with the president and others to convince and make big bets and big decisions uh, in terms of high speed, uh, undersea fiber optic cables that the government yep. would sponsor or create a conducive environment for. And then the last one is more of action. And this action happens both in sort of the government side, it happens in the tech side, and it happens with the civic Um, and citizen side. So I think Mm -hmm. government's job is to create an enabling environment. And so the phrase Silicon Savannah came from some marketing language that uh, the government in its forecast, foreshadowing future of what tech could look like had had decided this idea of of an enclave or city on the outskirts of the capital called Konza Technopolis. And this was, trying to play into this idea similar to what had happened in India, where you could designate certain cities and certain special economic zones and say, that's the tech place. Universities will be there. That'll pay no tax. Uh, big corporates will come and, and be able to, to, to do R&D there and outsource it. Mm-hmm. And most of all, business process outsourcing, taking the India playbook of saying, why don't we have call centers? What not we do? You know, you send your, your scanned pages, we'll type them, whatever things that, for one we'll be cheaper than India, <laughs> maybe a little slower, who knows? And so all of that um, in the vision for Konza Technopolis, the phrase Silicon Savannah, I believe, one of its first mentions is there. And mm-hmm. um, and so, again, timing, leadership. So Kenya's getting a bit of buzz. And then there's a, there's a piece in Time Magazine by a gentleman who flies in. And so he picks up on that and uses the Silicon Savannah name. This is maybe 2012. And by that mm-hmm. point, you've got a number of things already there. The IHUB has been around for two years, and the IHUB also, you know, it took timing. One, um, I remember visiting and just a bunch of developers and coders trying to find space. Yep. <laughs> it was it was very hard. We'd meet downtown in all sorts of uh uncomfortable spaces, just trying to find a, a place to call our own. Ushahidi mm-hmm. at the time, benef you know, yeah. beneficiary of the the um um the the two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. two thousand eight. Post-election violence and later, just this coming together of the tech community. So, so bottom line, I'd say it's those three things, and uh, that's how something like the IAP comes to be. But the key thing within all of this is Kenya sold an idea far bigger than what its reality was. So, on all those three fronts, we were it was always, even till now, there's a big gap between um, the idea of what we've talked about and the mm-hmm. action. Make no mistake, there's great things happening. We've exceeded yeah. expectations in many places, but, yeah. but I like the fact that we didn't wait for it to be true to claim it. We just basically claimed it and then sort of brought the showmanship and that attracted the resources. So sadly, there's been, there's been a reckoning of, of failure or misplaced expectations or pulling out or you know corporate adjustments where the people just, it didn't go as expected, but there are some things mm-hmm. that went well and we have a lot to be proud of
0: yeah yeah and i mean yes the branding of 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 this digital space is very very on point you know it's 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 we we know about it across the continent so so the branding was also really a, a big contributor but i just want to go back to this space you know i mean we I think there was a time co-working spaces became a very popular concept. You know, they were kind of becoming quite popular as well in the West. And then, you know, there was a lot of interest, investment and funding into having similar spaces on the African continent. And at the point at which I visited IHUB, we had co-working spaces in Zimbabwe, but they never were quite the same. I remember when I walked into IHUB and there was this kind of Matatu uh, map, which had been mapped out like the New New York subway system or, you know, uh a very you know a, a western railway system and I thought oh this is really interesting that you know you're imagining this map and then putting it together the lines the different uh stops and all of that and then I think there was also there was Akira Chicks there was um the bloggers um, network there were all these mm-hmm. kinds of people doing different things and I think that was what for me stood out was that there was different kinds of ideas there was different ways of imagining one's Kenyanness in a global way, which I wasn't seeing in, in the tech space in Zimbabwe. What is that? Is that a, a, an element of education or something else that was also happening that came along with this digital era?
1: I think because the IHAB was one of the first spaces, like you're saying, that just brought tech and then it was tech and what? So it became tech and the arts. And the creative economy, it became tech and finance, it became mm-hmm. tech and banking, it became tech and agriculture, tech and health. And so even though for some of those later it that the tech part would fizzle out for it to just stand on its own, um, mm-hmm. the IHUB, I I think created this blueprint that later got adopted in hundreds of Instances in dozens and dozens of countries across Africa, as the very first one, and truthfully, mm-hmm. it's it, nobody even believed in it when it started. I think the the origin story is that essentially Ushahidi, not anything secret or untoward, but but they they essentially made it happen, asking for forgiveness not for permission, it, because their original idea would not get greenlit by anyone, and so it became that their office was the space. And when that mm-hmm. started to pick up, they moved out and actually got some space underneath because it was distracting to be in the IHUB itself. And that just shows how, you know, in many cases, again, the dots connect looking backwards. But in that moment, it's um, nobody wants to fund the risk. Nobody wants to blaze the trail. Uh, and and the IHUB itself has also gone through its ups and downs. It's come close to shutting down or disappearing entirely. And I believe were it not for the strength of its brand and this idea of its legacy, it would not have lasted until today. There's been multiple moments in the road where a significant stepping in has had to happen. And Right Night has its home with the CC hub of Nigeria and and they're the people running the infrastructure and everything else. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's in its own way, somewhat of a metaphor for how Kenya may have led in the narrative and may have led in, in starting up and may have led in setting the blueprint, but in many ways, Nigeria has taken its what you could argue is its rightful place. I mean, I was telling somebody on my team the other day, our whole nation—they <laughs> have more internet users, uh, you know, on paper. And it depends on how you count internet users. Mm-hmm. I know we can mm-hmm. fight over sources, but they probably have more internet users than we have people in this country. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, to, to argue that 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 they are they should be in a certain place ahead of us is not is not to be crazy socioeconomically um, that. Makes sense for even other reasons, with them being an you know oil-rich economy, amongst other significant yeah. things. So I say that just to play into how Kenya might have had this head start on Nigeria and set it up for success mm-hmm. in some ways. But it's very much earned its rightful place and has its own challenges too, as Nigerians might have told you, or can I can probably hear maybe one of your listeners saying it's not perfect here either. Well, I'm not saying it is, uh, but, but but I think that there's a like great yeah, symbiosis between them. and and um, I, I think what I love about Kenya is that it has that trailblazing capacity and that visionary capacity that no one can really take away from it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to start to zero in a little bit on the k o t phenomenon, um now, I also remember at this time, you know, this is just after westgate, um the the shootings that had happened at Westgate. And I remember just being in the city and everywhere there were banners, the we are one, we are one. Now, I mean, also it's just very well-known, you know, the wristbands that Kenyans wear with the, the national flag and the colors, is a very common sight. Everyone seems to have this thing and this, this kind of idea of being in solidarity and togetherness. Um, and then, you know, KOT sort of shows up around this time. Does that in any way start to make people Um, feel a kind of solidarity with each other and to to want to build community with the digital space becoming what it was becoming at that time? Or is it completely something different that that really started to make KOT a player in the digital space?
1: Yeah, I think that there's sort of two strands here and they Mm. weave in and weave out. And so if we go back to the 2007-2008 general election in Kenya, that Mm. is... Well, the 2007 general election and the 2008 post-election violence um, that took place in Kenya and, you know, significantly marred, you know, the history um, of the nation and has been a really defining point, whichever way you look at it. At that Mm -hmm. point, there was a number of things that all came to a head, breakdown of the fabric of society along ethnic lines and along political lines and along socioeconomic lines that crippled... Uh, many things it it you know it, it displaced uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands. Uh, thousands lost their lives in the actual um, post-election violence, and many relationships um, and societies and and you know there's a loss of you know economic activity, people's homes, you know, etc. And, and and a lot just happened in that moment. So mm-hmm. what followed was this coalition government. And mm-hmm. even that had always been testy. And the reason I start with that, which is more of a political sort of angle to, to consider it, is that online, despite the intense vitriol, and this mirrored itself. So some of what was happening offline did mirror online, meaning that there was... Uh, On on diaspora message boards, there were people from different ethnic communities abusing each other and really Mm. digging into each other. On social media in its very, very early days, particularly amplified by blogs, there was a disharmony that reflected what was happening on on ground, but was, of course, by no means matched by the actual harms that were taking place. And so I say this because to look at our unity later has to look and start with, with the biggest essentially historic moment of disharmony and um and grave uh you know danger and loss of life politically and and societally speaking that happened so so online ushahidi for example is born by a number of people on a message board back and forth and bloggers trying to say Mm -hmm. how do we respond and so people of all walks of life ethnic communities bound by a shared love of technology begins Mm -hmm. right the Mm -hmm. iHub, which is later born of that um, and while all of these founders have gone their separate ways, what united them was technology. I think in terms of Kenya's defining a shared identity around, we are the ones in tech. We are the ones in the blogosphere. We are the ones on Twitter. We are the ones on uh, these message boards, like yep. uh, former, like a sort of Reddit bulletin board style website called mm-hmm. mashada.com and many, many others that were diaspora leaning. So, So anything we look at now and look to and say, okay, this is, this identity of Kenyans on Twitter, for example, harkens itself back in that even when Twitter was starting up in Kenya, a lot of it was actually bloggers who mm. adopted the microblogging, and sadly that mm. killed many of their blogs. A lot of the long form content mm. they would do was replaced by these tweets and these quips and these tweet ups, etc. And the thing with uh, Kenyans on Twitter is that I and I try to talk about this in the chapter. It's very much. Um, in our house, in our space, we don't get along, right? We fight, we bicker, we argue, we are at each other's necks and throats, off of cultural lines, off of socioeconomic lines, off of classism, off of education, off of all these uh, politics, et cetera. However, the second <laughs> someone attacks our house overall, when we stand outside the gate, we put all our differences aside. And so that's now what, what a lot of people say in Zimbabwe and Nigeria, and Somalia and Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, wherever else, they all experience that. They experience this very strange, um, <laughs> like assumed homogeneity that just comes in and and quickly sees us mobilize and take what were literal like arguments of five seconds ago. In fact, some of them burn away like small embers in the background. But we don't want you seeing the you know the dirty laundry. We want you seeing this united front. And so that's mm-hmm. how. Um, Kenyans would just go online and start abusing any Ugandan, and any Nigerian that they could find off of things that were happening politically. You know, a South African minister says a remark about Kenyans oh, yeah. and every South oh, African, you know, gets it. The, the, the Nigerian um, Sport football association gives Kenyans uh, a dirty old, you know, decrepit, like, football pitch for the national team to train and people take arms. Niger- you know, Uganda claims that uh, our president is the son of, you know, some... Someone in 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 Uganda and people take over. It could be anything, even things that people disagree with. But CNN labels Kenya a hotbed of uh, of, oh, a terror. Hotbed
0: of terror, <laughs>
1: and and you have and you have this happening. So I think to your point, it's a strange aspect of where it's very projected. Now the Westgate um, terrorist attacks of 2013. It's been 10 years, actually, just two months ago, or mm. la- rather last month. Um, those were a really dark time as well because. The, there's there's not only these incursions and larger um, uh, military uh, activities of Kenya in Somalia that I'm probably not fully qualified to even talk about, but but there's these larger security um, uh, terror anti-terror uh, activities, including um, um, uh, radicalization and and, uh, and extremism with Al shabaab This this uh, particular. Um, a terrorist group. And so they are the ones who conducted the siege on the Westgate Mall, um, as it's now been um, investigated and confirmed. And so during that time, it was a very dark time because, uh, and, and and not only that, there's been other times too, there was an attack on the Ducid um, complex uh, years later, um, and even that tragic loss of life and, and same for Westgate. But Westgate was one of the first times, um, certainly in, in, uh, in recent memory worldwide, where um, um, as chronicled now somewhere else in in some other writings I've done, where the terrorists had um, a Twitter account and were providing live updates, and then the police and the authorities and you know all the you know all the, the special forces, the armed forces involved in all their uh, cadres etc. They were providing their updates, uh, and then you had the public providing citizen updates as well in the middle of an active uh, you know siege, and so that entire experience very traumatic um and and uh, still to this day a lot of uh questions to be asked there was there was a lot more of uh you know aspects of, of breaches of trust and uh, breaches of good faith by uh by uh the, the 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 kenyan forces as well and again this is all public the cctv footage i'm not saying anything i'm not you know not you know being patriotic or whatever i'm just i'm, I'm calling it what it is and so the, the the thing with people online is they watched it all and um and within that, you know, we were all affected, and that's when the rallying cl- cry came but yeah. the same way that 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 we find that it's Kenya versus everybody. well, it's got to be coming together, even yeah. though we we feel this this pain and this uh, betrayal from you know people who've taken advantage of this situation um to loot, to plunder to to you know sort of uh, breach good faith in the middle of an active terrorist siege. that speaks more about a lot more that we have going on, but we are one, for instance, and so to your point. That's one of the various hashtags that looked internal, uh, external, mm-hmm. and just tried to speak Kenyan to Kenyan, person to person. Um, it, it's not too dissimilar to when there was a, um, a drought, um, and um, this is years before 2013, when uh, Kenyans for Kenya was born, and Kenyans raised over $10 million, as them, for them, aided, accelerated, and conceptualized by Twitter. And so that's mm-hmm. when it's saying, no, it's we're not waiting for the international community. We're not waiting for someone to write us a big check and a savior. We're going to pull together our one dollar here, one dollar there, and we can do something. And so that became a media, corporate, government, global uh, thing off of a hashtag by Kenyans for Kenyans. Um, and again, it has a contentious history later. Great idea. <laughs> um, who owned it, who took credit for it, Etc. It always becomes something like this uh, when it goes offline. But to your yeah. point. There is something about Kenyans on Twitter where the history just looks and shows this unity that can form um, and put aside. That's the cutest thing about it is you can imagine if, you know, uh, it was Democrats and Republicans, really, uh, Republicans going at it. And then second, so you say something? You sort of see this. We all come you together come I don't understand why, you know, all of you never agree on anything. So from a Kenyan, that's how it feels sometimes that we we do that. But it's been fascinating to see it have an impact on politics, governance, activism, culture, sports, you name it, almost uh, all parts of society today.
0: And that's, that's what you've talked about, the dis- dissociative nature of it, because there is a time I became a little bit of an insider. I was sort of always around Kenyans. And I got nuances. So I, you know, I start from watching and I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, you rally each other, you you come together and then you start to know people and they say, no, no, no. You know, mm, this one, very problematic. Mm, This, no, Mm," you know. And then you get this nuance and you're like, so what is it that brings you cohesively to, I mean, people would say, even some bosses would say, hey, you know what? If you need to, like if people are fighting with us, please take some time, go there and fight them. And then you can come back to your job. What is that? Like, I mean, wh- where does that come from? Was it from the the 2007 perceptions that we started potentially to have about Kenya? Is it is it that that's sort of fueling a kind of branding? You know, we've talked about branding. So, is it, is it where is that coming from? This need to show this very public front of unity and solidarity. Where do you think it's coming from?
1: I mean, I think it's, it's a bit hard to say in terms of trying to atomize it or to uh, to draw a thread from uh, like a specific origin story. This is one mm. of those where it's like you know what I guess you know, Marvel films called the multiverse. Multiple answers are all true and happening at the same time, even with their various contradictions. I think that if we're looking to the genesis in terms of like a cultural concept, one might consider that, that it is in terms of like Kenya's founding principles without getting too like political, because, because that's also Mm -hmm. not my, not the hat that I wear or that I'm (laughs) qualified to speak on authoritatively, but but this concept of Harambe, or the, what was initially called the spirit of Harambe, which manifests now as this concept that people pull together funds for all sorts of things, including for strangers, relatives, friends, and others, and it's just that idea of, of a, a shared, uh, shared response towards tragedy, suffering, opportunity, etc. Mark is going for further studies in the UK for argument's sake. And so people are going to have a Harambee, right? They're going to have a a gathering to pull together funds. And these have become a bit more stretched and strained right now in the current economic times, because a lot of it will be medical bills. It'll be funeral expenses. It will be um, school fees. It'll be sort of pressing, urgent family, health, and social cultural needs, as opposed to wants, Weddings, though, are, are there, too. There's a pooled culture for, hey, our friends and family are going to gonna chip in. We're going to set up a WhatsApp wedding committee, and uh, you're all going to get your targets. <laughs> Churches have all manner of things when they're building, um, when they have just general fundraisers of all sorts. And that is a concept that you can argue starts this idea that even with the looser, weaker social ties, that people would be compelled to give, to share, to contribute um, and to to participate now me, that's me probably stretching the concept which was there from the sixties to date because I think online there's a it, you know Kenya is like a, in, in its own ways can be a walking contradiction right so so that's that's one of the challenges I'd say with trying to have some of these ideas neatly uh, fall into certain um, um, ways of thinking because it's it's not a guarantee that it'll 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 be as neat as I'm as I'm presenting it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then also, I mean, there's the coinciding with M-Pesa showing up. I mean, M-Pesa becomes this model as well for mobile money across the continent. So, you know, if you're, you know, we see people, you know, cancer patients, they come online and they say we're trying to fundraise X amount of money. And then I think there was one that was very like it was a lot of money, but it was raised within a day or so. People really came together and it contributed to the mobile, uh, to the m account. So there's that connection there that's happening as well.
1: Absolutely right. I think that's actually sometimes even something I might take for granted, which is that um, that there is this financial bedrock on which it mm-hmm. takes next to no significant exertion of effort to contribute to a stranger you've never met seen or known um that in seconds a minute or less you can send anywhere from if you're i guess you know very wealthy and very generous you can send um what i think like two thousand dollars or something to that effect or as little as uh, 20 us cents and that every single coin and shilling counts regardless of how you send it so that is a good point that has created disability as well it has also come with a lot of scams and you know fake fundraisers i think you know kenyans on twitter tend to be also quite investigative curious you know really connect the dots okay everyone is feeling this story let's find out about this gentleman this lady is this person sick are they really this do they really do this and um not too different to how in the US you find somebody has a GoFundMe and people are like, mm, the story is not adding up, and one person goes in and does the diligence. So you do have both your cases of which are, you know, incredibly touching and heartwarming and sincere. And and were it not for them coming online, you know, it's a miracle how they get the funds raised, down to yeah. situations that, yeah, where people's um uh charity and and good naturedness gets taken advantage of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to bring another strand of something that's happening around this time. I mean, Barack Obama, he's elected as President of the United States, first Black president of Kenyan descent, his father being Kenyan. Um, and a, a feeling, I suppose, among Kenyans of he's sort of one of us. Um, and, and you know, then you talk about the time that um, Kenya calls out CNN en masse for referring to Kenya as this hotbed of terror, and that was at the time that um, Obama was visiting Kenya and it felt very much for a lot of people like a homecoming. Was that, is that also another factor that somehow plays into this kind of international perception that Kenyans felt at that time they had to um, generate or give out?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing with Kenyans is they'd never been afraid to challenge uh Uh, media and reporting from Western organizations that they felt was uncharitable, unfair, uh, mischaracterizing, uh, played into sort of tropes and really like, you know, antiquated stereotypes of of what, like this binary one-sided Africa paint with a broad brush that that some, uh, you know, particularly you know, Caucasian or, or white journalists, but generally Western In the, insofar as there are, you know, um, I could think of a few, uh, even born on the continent, but work for Western media where it's like, it happened. And they're like, that wasn't me. It was my sub editor. I wrote, I wrote a pretty fair balance piece, but somebody needed to <laughs> spin it for click. So I've seen it happen so many different ways and it's not to pick and choose on the basis of race or anything else. It's generally Western media. And so mm-hmm. this is where uh, across Africa, things like the Africa they never show you, and so on. You yeah, know, um, yeah. come from and and so for Kenya, I think that uh, CNN, but not just them. There's been many other media um, who've been given the same treatment of hashtag someone tell, and that has been used as a hashtag. It's not. It's actually not used as much anymore now. I think the the thing with present day compared to that chapter is that that chapter for me um i'm really glad because it's somewhat of like a time capsule it captures all these thoughts and ideas and ideals that that I've, i feel were appropriate were accurate but there's also been this real morphing of cyberspace as more people have joined the fray um sort of a core shared motivation has really really dissolved <laughs> and so yeah. and so you have a lot more of us being insular and it's very yeah. rare for us to attack anybody now because we have, <laughs> where like all the fractured points we were glossing over before could not be more uh, more apparent than, than now as Kenyans on X. Uh, I mean, some people are saying now KOT has become Kenyans on threads. I think threads is dead, you know, and we've, we've written, we've spilled a lot of ink as Nendo talking about why we don't think that threads will work. But we think that if X or Twitter falls apart, for well, threads is well placed to sort of Mop that up uh, potentially, mm. but it's missing a lot of of um, of things, including it's very close tied to Instagram. But but coming back to it, I think to your your question, the thing with either the CNN situation or media in general is, uh, I mean, even the during the 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 Ducid, um, a terrorist attack here, the New York Times wrote uh, some some again it, it it you know I understand I understand media and reporting, but yeah, it, it, it was, it was not a very sensitive, uh, piece. And certainly if you look at how, you know, the, the times has covered, uh, and this was a, an actual situation that Kenyans brought like mass shootings in the U S right. They, there was a double standard with, you know, with black lives and black bodies, um, of Africans and how they were being captured in photograph and discussed and to some degree dismissed. And so, That actual journalist, um, one, was even censured. And the the decision, this was years ago, but the decision from the media council came out, I believe, in the last three months, uh, having really examined the situation and felt and and adjudicated it as a media authority to say, well, how should Western journalists carry themselves out? So these hashtags, at times, they have bigger impact. The one you're mentioning for CNN, and CNN had multiple infractions over the years, but one of them saw Kenya pull. I think, a million dollars in advertising money from CNN. Yeah. The other one had um, um, uh, CNN, I think, recognize the severity of its mistake in its coverage to the point that it sent its highest ranking official outside of the CEO to Kenya, to the president, to apologize in person just to try to mend things. And so there's a power there in these hashtags, in these uh, this level of self-organizing online, but I, I don't think it, it it works quite the same way. I don't think the social ties are as big. And part of that is just thinking about age, right? There was um, <laughs> as more more younger and younger people join, they are yeah. in their own um, you know socioeconomic and and you know broad life situations. And so a number of things resonate with them, others completely don't. And so in fact, if anything, um, uh, some cans on Twitter today, because that's what happens over time is sort of new elites build and by elites it's people with large audiences, et cetera, who don't feel beholden because no gatekeepers made it easy for them and so on. So they have their own rules and and they have their own audiences that they're moving and mobilizing. And, and some of them have come to fame off of notoriety and from, mm. uh, you know, essentially, you know, in some cases, hyper-masculinity or... You know radical you know ethnopoliti you know politicizing of issues et cetera so so some of the rules and the, the the what flies now, and especially since Elon Musk got rid of the trust and safety team et etc, I mean there's things I see on Twitter X nowadays that that I'm like, no that would that would not have been able to fly before so I do think there's harms to the current setup and um, and certainly a, a lack of some of the bonds and ties that would have been there before.
0: All right. That's a wrap. And that's part one of this interview. We're going to have a second part to it, uh, which will be published shortly. And as I said in the intro, um, if you want to know a little bit more about Nendo, you can find the company online at www.nendo.co.ke. All right. I wish you a good rest of your week and I'll catch you the next time. Take care until then.